Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late to train the train. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work. Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host, Katie Lazarus. Hello, welcome back to Employee of the Month. I am interrupting pilot season in which I've been interviewing all sorts of showbiz people to speak with the phenomenal Emily Spivak, whose New York Times bestseller, Warren Stories, is out right now. You can also see her speak live. She'll be in San Francisco in February and March 11th. She'll be in New York. Go to warnstories, W-O-R-N-S-T-O-R-I-E-S.com to hear her read from her sartorial memoir, which she edited and is one of her many projects. We sat down and spoke about sustainability as well as working on all of these projects, which combine history, anthropology, social studies, pop culture, and fashion. Here's my interview with Ms. Emily Spivak. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm here with Emily Spivak, who I am so thrilled to have here. Um, She is the author most recently of Worn Stories. And I want to ask Emily what it is you do because I know that you um, have a bunch of different websites and I also know that you teach and I've read your work Um, but I want to hear about everything because it seems like you have a lot of different um, things you've done over the years and also simultaneously. Yeah I it's a little bit difficult to describe I guess I mean I, I think I I make things um so I make projects I make websites I make collections, I gather things for the web, I gather things to put into a gallery, um, I gather things to put into zines what or into books. What about a curator? Is that a type Okay, of yeah, book? maybe, yeah, that's, I guess that's part of it. Although, I mean, I think that word winds up being a little bit, I, I mean, everyone is a curator these days too, so. I don't know. But I'm I mean, but, but, DJing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm not, I can say with confidence that I'm not a DJ. So that at least there are certain things I can say with confidence that I am not. Um, but I, I like making things. And so it winds up, you know, taking the shape of editing and writing and making and, and, and starting things. And what was threaded? Threaded was a website that I started for the Smithsonian. Um, it's a clothing history blog. And they came to me because they were, they'd seen some of these other projects that I had worked on that were about clothing, but kind of in a weird, maybe a sort of way that was a little bit, wasn't your typical fashion history and it wasn't, you know, a fashion blog. And, and so they had seen these projects and they were like, Hey, we should do something together. And I was like, you guys don't have a fashion or clothing history blog why don't I give that a shot? And so they agreed to it, which is kind of amazing considering I don't have a fashion history background. So it was, it's a, it's a clothing history blog. Uh, it's the only one that the Smithsonian has. And it was sort of an investigation for me of looking at everyday stuff, like the stuff we wear all the time and contextualizing it within history and within current events and within the Smithsonian's collection as well. 
And how did you, how did they find out about you? You mentioned some of the sites, which were some of them that, that piqued their interest? I think that the two sites that they had seen uh, were Sentimental Value. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about Sentimental Value. Okay. Can you describe okay. what it sure, is? Sure, sure. So it's a project I started in 2007 where I collect stories I find on eBay when people are selling clothes. And they talk about what they did while they're wearing the clothes and why they're getting rid of them. And it's this incredible, unexpected platform for storytelling if you dig deep enough. I mean, this isn't like, it's not like every auction has a story attached to it. I mean, usually it's just like, this is the condition, this is the size, this is the color, this is how much. But occasionally people will just decide to share. And it's, I'm, you know, it's forever a mystery why people decide to share. Um, but they do. And they'll share, you know, intimate details about, you know, their bridesmaid getting drunk at their wedding or, you know, being levitated in a dress or joining nudist colony or, and then there's their red rayon jacket, you know, that That was me, the nudist colony. (laughs) So I've collected 600, over 600 of these stories since 2007. I got so excited by it because it's both an anthropological study. The same way that I always wonder if you were to look through people's trash Exactly. I mean, this is this is stuff people are deciding to get rid of, and yet they're attaching these stories. And and so my feeling is like I want to collect these stories before they disappear, Um, because you know eventually these eBay bids go away, these auctions go away, and I do feel like it's this like you know someday we'll look back, and sure we can look at like fashion magazines or lifestyle magazines, but we can also look at the way that people were sharing on eBay, you know, and the way that people spoke the sort of the vernacular of the web in a way, the LOLs and the emoticons and, you know, yelling at you in all caps and that kind of stuff, along with just what they were actually saying. So it's also so international. I was curious um, if you get people from all over the, the world. I feel like maybe I, I, I don't know if it's maybe just the eBay search and mm-hmm. what I'm looking at, but I, it's, it winds up being a little bit more us centric, but there's no, I mean, in typical American fashion. I guess, yeah, we're we're just like, I mean, we're just we have to like get it off our chest, and you know, just like get rid of the like Hanes T-shirt and also this crazy story. Um, but no, I think I. But, but not get rid of it entirely because they don't throw it out, nor do they give it, nor do they donate it. Like there's right. there's so many levels attached to thinking like, I not only want to give this to someone else, but I want them to pay for it. Right. And so is it, is it a marketing tool? Like, is it, is it, or is it cathartic for them? Or sometimes you get the sense that these people are just like really lonely in the middle of somewhere and just like need to tell someone. And so that someone is whoever's reading the, the bid, the auction. Um, you know, so, so what was even then what I did in 2010 is I actually started bidding on the objects. So for a while I was just collecting the stories. Did you ever like, bid on something that you actually couldn't afford? No. I mean, I only bid on stuff. Like, I bid on, like, inexpensive stuff. Because, I mean, I I just, it felt, it felt kind of funny to be bidding on this stuff in general. Except when the things started arriving in the mail, and I'd be so excited for, it was like, oh, the story I bought has arrived. It's not like, oh, the denim cutoffs. Like, none of that stuff I ever had any intention like I wanted to wear it. I was just so, it was something very eerie, but 
really fun about just like the story arriving in the mail, the physical object in the story. Like now I have it. So then I started showing that work in galleries um, and that has been really fun. That seems fantastic. Um, and how did, did that pave the way then for Warren stories? It did, yep. Um, so I think, you know, I was sort of thinking about, okay, well, if people are sharing their stories on eBay, um, and then I was sort of like, well, I'm drawn to this anyway, because when I look at my own closet, I see this kind of like archive of experiences and memories. And whenever I travel somewhere, you know, I'll, the first thing I'll do is maybe go to a flea market or go somewhere and pick up usually, you know, a, some piece of clothing that is a memento of that experience. So I would look in my own closet and kind of inspired by what I was finding on sentimental value. I was like, well, what if I start writing some of my own stories? And I started and then kind of quickly realized that I was, I was sort of like, yeah, I actually already know all my stories. I'd like to talk to other people and see what their stories are. So I started asking some friends and family just to kind of experiment. And I asked them for their clothing related story and, you know, something, you know, a garment in which something momentous happened while they were wearing it or something significant in their life. Um, and I quickly found out that these are people who I thought I knew really, really well, and they were sharing stories with me I just never heard before. And so I was like, okay, this is kind of interesting. Like, there's something here. And then I did this writing workshop at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Philadelphia. Um, and I was kind of toying with this idea. And a woman showed up, and it was like winter, you know, freezing outside. She was wearing a big puffy coat. And she comes in and she unzips it. She's wearing this jade green ball gown underneath. And she's like, I'm, I've been so excited to share my story about this ball gown. And it was sort of like at that moment, I was like, okay, something, I need to kind of pursue this. And so then I started just asking people who I thought were just interesting people would be good storytellers. And I loved, so some of the, many of the folks have been on Employee of the Month, actually, um, Piper Carmen and the late David Carr, um, yeah, have that been on it. And some of the folks are in fashion, like Andy Spade um, and Simon Doonan. Um, but then others are not at all um, whatsoever. I mean, I loved the guy, uh, the Harvey. Oh, Harvey. Yeah, yeah. the the announcer from Double Dare. Yes. From the kids, the 80s, <laughs> like 80s kid game show, Double Dare. Yeah, that was, and his story was heart-wrenching, but fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Um, the bright red tuxedo jacket. And then Debbie Millman, who has a fantastic podcast, um, design matters, which is not about fashion. No, um, but she had a great piece about wearing this uh, crazy coat that she bought at Hermé, and it's Hermé, right? Yeah, yep. And um, running into Woody Allen not once but twice, him <laughs> recognizing her because she spit out her gum on the sidewalk, right, right in front of him, and he was so irritated as I would have been, as anyone would have been, but right. having Woody Allen chastise you is just the greatest. <laughs> I think it's the coolest thing. No, I, yeah, I, I love her story. Love her story. It was so funny, and she doesn't strike me. I don't know her person, but she doesn't strike me as a very vain person. So it was also, and it's clear in the the piece also, and that's I think what I loved about uh, these stories that you compiled together into this book, Warren Stories, is that um, clothing affects everyone in different ways whether you're really into couture or whether you don't care at all and you just want to wear that same gray shirt, there's a message to everyone's madness when it comes to how we uh, dress ourselves. Right. 
And I mean, I think that that's also, there was a very deliberate uh, choice that I made. I did not want it to be all fashion people. I wanted it to just be kind of everyday people, some who are, you know, culturally well-known and some who are interesting storytellers. Some of the people in the book are from Craigslist. Um, I, you know, I was feeling like, Maybe this is getting a little too New York, LA, and, you know, and I just wanted to mix it up and kind of see what, and I just wanted to see what would happen. Like, what happens if you post something in a tiny town in Oklahoma saying, hey, does anyone out here have a, a story based on a piece of clothing? I, I think I posted it in like the writer's writing section or, and, um, and, and I just started posting it in like the smallest towns I could find that were listed on Craigslist and was getting all kinds of responses. And so a handful of them made their way into the book. So that, um, you know, Anchorage, Alaska, big base in Oklahoma, some, some great stories. But, um, but yeah, at the end of the day, I mean, these are not stories about these luxury, necessarily these luxury items. Yeah, I mean, if they, it, they're, and- Right, right. And, and the, yeah, a lot of wear and tear. And in fact, everyone had to send me their garment so that it could be photographed. And which was also just a really interesting process, like in terms of putting this book together, because these are a lot of these people I didn't know. And I just, I said, hey, could you share your story with me? And they did, and they were open to it. And I was like, that's great. Thank you so much. Now that thing that means the world to you, would you just send it to, would you FedEx yeah. it to me? And everyone did. What a pain in the neck. It was a logistical nightmare. <laughs> it was a, like, from a production standpoint, it was a- Did lo- you pay for shipping? Yes. And I and I, and I put And I made the label for them. So like, I would email them the label. So it was, all they had to do was put it in the box. But I, yes, paid- Did you give them a box? I know I couldn't. You didn't want them to feel boxed in. <laughs> I did like Andy Spades, uh, who is a, has a fashion line that's um, a brother fashion line to his wife, uh, Kate Spades, mm-hmm. right? But in any event, I really loved, much more importantly than my not understanding how marriage works, um, loved how we talked about hating when designers will try to make clothing look old or authentic. Um, by putting holes in them, you know, jeans with holes in them, and it's still yeah. $110 or whatever. And um, that made me happy because they have a huge, Kate Spade is a, you know, a huge brand. Right. Um, and they don't do that, and it looks like Jack Spade, their doesn't, other brand, doesn't do that Doesn't well. do that either. Yeah. No, I think that there's a, there's a desire for, I think, brands to, you know, the whole sort of artisanal trend and the heritage, you know, the sort of resurgence of heritage brands. And So what is the difference between heritage and artisanal and how, how do they relate to clothing? Well, I mean, I think, you know, I'm thinking about, say, something like Woolrich or even like Levi's or something that just has been, has been around and, and has a history to it. But there are a lot of brands that just are kind of, you know, newer and they want to imbue their brand with some kind of significance or, or greater meaning. And so that they try to like create these stories, these narratives around the brand itself or, you know, so it, so it can come through through like wearing holes and making it look lived in or actually sort of through whatever they create as the brand classic, narrative. Like a, a, a- P code or right. you know, something like that that's been worn for generations. Right. 
And I think a lot of the times it falls flat. I mean, like consumers can read through that stuff. Like it's like, no, it's just like it's a pea coat that is just, you know, I mean, like any other pea coat and, you know, the story of you know, and and if it's not like Woolrich does actually have, you know, has been around for a million years. There are some brands that really, you know, LL Bean or whatnot that. Who's Woolrich? Woolrich. Yeah. They're just like a. Oh, Woolrich. Woolrich. I thought you were referring to someone named Will. Rich, oh no. I apologize. No, no, no. Woolrich. Like totally W O O L R I C H. Yeah. Yeah. Like who's Will? Yeah. I don't know him. It doesn't mean that he's not famous. I'm sure he is. I just don't know him. Why did you start? the website for Warren Stories instead of just starting to write Warren Stories? Meaning, why did you do the website first and then do the book? Because I didn't know how to make a book. And so in the process of, I knew how to make a website. And also I think from the the standpoint of like someone who likes to just make stuff, I knew that taking, it would take a long time to make a book. Um, that just, that process takes forever. And in the meantime, I wanted to make myself start collecting these stories and getting better at it and getting better at like editing them and figuring out what the process would be. And also to just sort of say like, put a stake in the ground as this is something that I do, but for more for myself um, than for anyone else. Like it was never the website. I never created the website to get like thousands of page views. It was, and, and it wasn't updated all that much, um, but it was an exercise for me to refine the idea and then to sort of figure out how the heck you like write a book proposal and, you know, find a book agent and find a publisher and all that stuff, which, you know, I mean, I started the website in 2010. The book deal happened in 2012 and it came out at the end of 2014. So, you know, the whole, the process has taken a while, but all along, like, at least I could be doing the creative fun part and that, because if I was just sort of steeped in the like, oh, I've got to figure out the proposal and have these meetings and stuff like that's just, that's not why I'm doing this stuff. I feel like that's a, um, common for most people unless they have the luxury of working at a um, institution that is going to give them enough gravitas to get a big enough book deal for their first book deal or if they are a longtime writer, but I, I think otherwise to look at it as a labor of love is the right way to go into writing any book. Right. I mean, or, I, or hoping I, yeah. to publish it. How's that? Yeah. Mean? Yeah. I mean, I was, I've, I worked the entire time that I was, you know, on other stuff. This, it's totally a labor of love. I mean, I, there were, I had to pay my rent. So how do you do that? Um, well, one of the main things I do is I consult for a think tank, um, uh, that focuses on sustainability issues. They've been around for about 25 years. Are they called sustainability? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what I do with sustainability, I've been working with them for um, over two years now. and um, Co-curating their global salons. I, w that's how I started off. Um, what does that mean? So they were working on a project to help... Uh, help people who are running companies or people, the sustainability folks within companies yeah. incorporate better sustainability practices into their work. And so we were doing this kind of like project around, we did a bunch of research around that and like how these practices get applied um, most effectively. It is such a massive, complicated undertaking. Like I, I think about, um, you know, 
a major department store or a furniture store and having to say things like, all right, we have a factory, let's say in Indiana particular area, and in order for these women to work, they have to be able to have their children there. Well, to us, that would be considered, you know, terrible and we'd have children on the property, it could be dangerous, you know, all of these things that, and yet you have to have this level of cultural relativism and then you have to figure out where that cultural relativism begins and ends. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, and, and then you're talking about these like huge companies who are only familiar with their supply chain, like maybe one level back. And, you know, they don't know where the thing that's coming from the thing that's coming, you know, that was made, you know, in this factory and then, you know, shipped to the next factory and shipped to the next factory. You know, they, they only go back so far. So, you know, there's a lot of systems change thinking that winds up happening and a lot of like thinking about, you know, how do you let a company know that like, I mean, I think that the 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 attitude is changing and has well, been changing so significantly over the past handful of years. But still, there's a lot of work to there's there's so much that still needs to be done. So a lot of what I do at sustainability is actually I don't I do a little bit less. I, my my role there is focused on kind of translating a lot of the um, more technical stuff into material that like uh, maybe a lay person or someone who's just like not as steeped in the sustainability world would be able to understand. Um, and so like taking the stuff that we make and like making it accessible to more people. It seems that consumers um, are actually more than willing to spend the money um, to have things be fair trade and be organic. Um, but the question within even those labels is what e what equals fair trade and what equals right. organic, and that um, is such a complicated, um, difficult road to hoe. Right, right. Hoe to row, really. Row, yeah. Ho uh, yeah. I mean, with hoes and rows, it's very complicated. <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about founding Dowser. Uh, Dowser. Well, so okay. Um, can I answer in a in a sort of indirect way? Sure. So, I mean, I can't, I can't say no. To it's, like, <laughs> it's up to you how you answer the question. Well, because it wasn't like I just was like, oh, I'm going to start this thing or I'm going to help start this thing. I think it comes from I had started this nonprofit when I was in college, um, right out of college, called Shop Well With You, which helps women with cancer improve their body image and quality of life. And I ran it as the executive director for about six years. And so I... I you know, I studied art uh, when I was in college. I had no experience with how to start something. And yet, you know, and my dad, when I was in, uh, in college, he was like, you should take an accounting class. And I was like, I'm not ever going to take an accounting class. But somehow I started this business or this nonprofit. And um, I feel like I sort of, it was like my, I got like hands-on MBA kind of experience in a way. Um so, but I kind of got into that, like, how do you get something off the ground? Um, and so when I stopped working on Shop Well With You, um, I was kind of into that sort of like social change space. And like, I think a theme that kind of runs throughout everything is just like starting stuff, making stuff. And so this opportunity came up to help start this website that was telling stories about social innovation. And at the time, 
this was like 2008. Um, I don't know, that term wasn't being used all that often. Storytelling? No, social innovation. Like people who are, you know, and and social entrepreneurship and people who are um, starting businesses that have a purpose beyond just a profit. And um, anyway... terms are now um, used so often that they're um, also misused. Yeah, exactly. Well, like storytelling now is like... Every company. Every company is like... American Express, they're like, we're really in the business of storytelling. Storytelling. (laughs) Everyone's in the business of storytelling. I mean, it's like... I also like the phrase business of storytelling. As someone who does storytelling, (laughs) who is a storyteller and does things like The Moth, I find it hilarious when people attach... Business. Business, it. yeah. Because I'm like, wait, so I'm so sorry. Where are you getting paid? <laughs> I, yeah. Box to do this. And also, the, uh, yeah, and frequently the story is just, it's not a story. I mean, it's like, it's advertising. It's marketing. And, um, Sometimes but, it's not even a complete, properly written sentence. Right. It's like a phrase. <laughs> it's like, it's their, it, it, maybe it's just their, like, logo. I mean. I just meant, like, I'll see the grammar and, and the way things are written on emails. Oh, like, oh. Uh, sorry, that it's so, it's, it's so, like, it's so fil- jargon filled and, like, you know, convoluted. The sentence is like, yeah, it's, I mean, we joke about that actually at sustainability um, because, you know, even, like, I, I was leaving the office today and I was like, you know, let's, think about another word besides impactful, you know, and, you know, is it, and, and we sort of were talking through like what that could, what could, that could look like. Cause I was like, well, what is actually happening here? You know, what's, what's the substance? Traumatizing? <laughs> well, no, it was positive. It, well, it was not traumatizing, but anyway, I mean, so. Hot. Hot. <laughs> yeah. Hot. That's what I, with three T's. With three T's. Yeah. That's the best way to mm-hmm. go. I like the three T's. So Dowser. Oh right, sorry. Got it. Yeah. So Dowser news and uh, so. Take your time, <laughs> Dowser. We got yeah news and stories about social innovation. Um, so just getting getting the stories of people who are doing good work and and telling those stories in an interesting way. Um, and I started it with um, this author David Bornstein, who has written extensively about social entrepreneurship. Um, and it was a really, it was a really fun project. That was sort of me like going in this social change direction. But meanwhile, like I was always having these other projects that I was doing kind of on the side, um, sentimental value or starting worn stories or even starting threaded when I was at, um, pop tech. So I sort of had this appetite to be doing multiple things or there wasn't I, I think I thought for a while there was just going to be a job. Like there was going to be one thing that was going to be like, okay, this is great and I'm going to be here for a while and, you know, this is going to tap into like all of my interests. But my interests sort of don't always overlap all that well. And so Pop Tech was an opportunity to kind of play with like, could this, you know, I don't know, it was writing, it was editing. But Pop Tech is like, it's like a mini version of TED essentially. Um, and it's like people, projects and ideas that are changing the world. And it's the whole like sort of getting on stage and giving a, you know, what we think of today as a TED talk sort of talk. And, um, but that, but it was, I feel like TED talk feels that way, but you can just say giving a talk, giving a talk, (laughs) but they sort of had that sort of like, you know, with the slideshow and blah, blah, blah. And so they weren't the first people that have slideshows. Right. This is true. I'm sure I had a teacher named Ted who also had a slideshow. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I don't I don't know Mr. if like, Ted. TED Talk gets credit for like PowerPoint. Yeah, no, it's but it's that and it's even before that before PowerPoint. Remember the the um 
Oh, the overhead projector. Oh, those. those are great. I could just put my butt on one of those. I, <laughs> I bet you could go on eBay and find one for like 99 cents plus $500 those shipping and handling favorite. or something. Those are my favorite eBay ones. Yes. Where like the product itself costs nothing and the the time that person takes to sell it right. is actually going to cost them more than the price that they're selling it for. I find that fascinating. Like, do they, why? You know, I mean, where are they so that they like, they have there. that time? Yeah, so many questions. What are the other sites that you would like folks to check out of yours um, that maybe they can contribute to? Well, Warren Stories, there's actually um, a section where you can submit your story. So, I mean, part of the project, it started on the web, as a lot of my projects do, and the book is not the end of the project. Um, the book is one part of the project. So, I mean, even just yesterday, I mean, maybe it won't sound like very much to someone else, but like four people submitted their stories um, to the site. And that to me is just, I mean, that's incredible. Um, and so there's a section and then I post them in the, in, on a part of the site. So I would love for people to keep doing that and to share their stories. And they can also do it. Um, I have like a hashtag I started, um, Warren Stories hashtag. And people can post a story on Instagram, and then it winds up on the website, too. Oh, wow. Um, What's your Instagram? My Instagram is mspivak, E-M-S-P-I-V-A-C-K. But um, uh, but the hashtag they can use is Warren Stories. I'm really thrilled to have you. You you're, are part of a very special breed of people who build communities. And I think of that when I think of Get Mortified, which is a really fun place as well as um the found oh yeah and, Davies in the book and Davy Rothbard is in the, the the book and is a great piece and I feel like you've also created that where you're you're building communities and it's a really beautiful thing and I hope you continue to do so thank you thank you Emily for being part of employee of the month thanks for having me Katie. That's it for this episode. Thank you to Ian Mazoff for editing this together. Thank you to all of you for listening. It is such a thrill to be part of the Employee of the Month community. If you are in New York, come to a live show. If not, you can always listen on the podcast or even if you are. And also their videos, Monkeys Are Adorable at YouTube. That's the obvious moniker, but uh, Google YouTube will not let me change it. It's so annoying, but that's all right. There are phenomenal videos there. Please go check them out at Monkeys Are Adorable. Go check yourself out and find out whether you're adorable. I bet you are. I know you are. Talk to you soon.